We are going to be reading this morning from Exodus uh, chapters 1 and 2. Because this is a longer text, the words will actually be uh, projected behind me so you can follow along there. It's also on page 45 of your Pew Bible. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service, in mortar and brick, and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shurfra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him but if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt with so God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. 
So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father rule, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. This is the word of God for the people of God. God. You may be seated. Well, good morning again. My name is Travis. I'm the pastor here. It's good to be with you, particularly if you are visiting. Glad to have you, whether that's relocating, just passing through town, or any number of things. Thanks for being with us. Uh, we'd love to get to know you, get to share more about who we are as a church, connect with you, and find ways for you to share your gifts and your abilities here with us as we're striving to do the same in our community. Uh, it's been a, a difficult day of, of news again this weekend with the earthquake in Morocco taking now over more than uh, 2,000 lives. And so we didn't have prayers of the people today, but I'd like to just take a moment uh, and pray for the people in Morocco now. So I invite you to pray with me. Uh, God, we pray uh, particularly for those uh, who are making rescue efforts in Morocco right now, that you would give them speed, that you would give them clarity and focus and strength, uh, that you would uh, move mountains to get help there to rescue those who have uh, survived, who still need help and rescue. We know, as we're going to hear about today, that we can call on you as a rescuer and a deliverer. And so we pray that you would be that now. Would you work there? Would you say lies? Would you strengthen your church? those that may be positioned there to give physical and tangible help, those that may be positioned to give spiritual and emotional help, walking with those who have now lost maybe everything. 
I pray that you would empower your people, that you would minister to those of your people who have lost everything themselves, uh, that they would not lose their hope in you. Would you be their strength now? I pray that you would also enable uh, those of us with means in the international community around them to come to their aid and support, that you would help those means to get directly to the people that need them, uh, to not be siphoned off in corruption uh, or waste, but to actually bring help. And so we pray that you would do these things now in your name. Amen. Uh, well, we are, uh, as you heard, in the book of Exodus. We're transitioning out of the series that we did this summer and into our fall series that's going to be focusing on the book of Exodus that we're calling Out of Darkness and Into Light, uh, focusing on God's delivering his people from the exact soul-crushing darkness that's listed here in these early chapters and into the light of life with him so that we might see in our own dark and difficult times the persistence of light, hope, and the faithfulness of God in the face of the greatest adversity, against all odds, you might say. And we begin that story today in chapters 1 and 2. There's way more than we could get through in just one sermon. I'm not going to pretend to do that, but we're going to go through some of the contours of this story. And if you're visiting with us, not every week will be a two-chapter week. If you're looking to get your, your strength conditioning on, come back again. Maybe we'll have you stand for a little longer. Who knows? Uh, but we will be going through larger portions of the text together because it's a very long book. But we're getting today in chapters 1 and 2. And these chapters are really not the beginning of a whole different story, but the continuation of a story God's already been giving his people in the book of Genesis. It's a continuation particularly of his promises in that book to bring blessing and redemption to the whole world through one little family. Uh, what's listed out here as the sons of Jacob, the people of Israel, verses 1 through 5 in chapter 1. And that one little family through God's blessing would grow to be more numerous than the stars. So Exodus is not a new story. It's the continuing story of what God's been doing about his faithfulness and his promises to his people in the face of darkness and struggle that was just as real in Genesis. But now these promises come to what feels like an even more serious challenge, maybe the most serious challenge that they have faced in the history of God's people up until now. And that is systematic oppression, enslavement, and even genocide at the hands of powerful Egyptian rulers. These are unquestionably tragic things, and things tragically that are not just limited to this one time in history. Uh, enslavement still exists in various forms, even in the world today. We're still dealing with the oppressive effects of chattel slavery in the U.S. now. Genocide has happened recently around the world. It's happened historically, not even that long ago in awful ways like the Holocaust, even here in the United States against Native Americans. Oppression still happens. We're still seeing violence against people just because of the color of their skin here in the United States. You can think of the shooting in Jacksonville only a couple weeks ago. All these things still exist in our world, and if we let ourselves pay attention to them for more than just a minute of hearing about them or scrolling through the news, we start to feel some questions. At least I start to feel some questions like, how do things like this happen? How do they keep happening? 
Why do they keep happening? How do we ever stop these things? Will any of this ever come to an end and finally be history that doesn't just keep repeating itself? These are honest questions. Scripture invites you to ask honest questions, to wrestle honestly. God is not afraid of our searching out. What do these things mean? Why are these things happening? In fact, God is answering those things in his word. And so I want us to take those honest questions in the face of hard things like this to the text and ask just three questions together today, which is first, what's happening here so that we can understand what we're really talking about? Second, how does something like this happen? And finally, how does deliverance come? So, so what's happening, how does it happen, and how does deliverance come? Before we do that, I want to pray just once more and ask God to fill up our hearts as we turn to his word. God, thank you that you don't tire of hearing from us, that though we just prayed a few moments ago, that, that you're not bothered by hearing from us again. And any more than you were bothered by hearing your people cry out to you and again and again. You're not tired of hearing from us, and so we pray that you would hear us now, just as your text says you heard your people and answered. Would you hear the cries of our hearts? wherever we feel frustrated and disappointed and hurting, wherever we're longing for something more and not quite there yet, wherever we're afraid of losing what we have now, would you come by your grace and show us that you, in fact, are the one who delivers. You are the one who saves. You are the one who hears and sees and knows and remembers. So remember us now by your grace. In your name we pray. Amen. We're going to go back through the text, so feel free to have your Bibles open if you have one with you. If not, there should be one in the pew in front of you. We're going to start by looking at what's happening here. I want to briefly make clear what is happening before we talk about how it happens so that we understand what we're dealing with. It's such a familiar story, the story of the Exodus, the story of the enslavement of God's people, of of Moses being set into the river, that we can see these things and just gloss right over them because they're so familiar and not actually understand, maybe hearing them for the first time, what's happening. So we're going to look back at what happens. In chapter 1, in verses 1 through 7, the text is showing us that the people of God are multiplying. They're getting massive and huge, so much so that the the people who have grown up in Egypt and always been Egyptians are noticing that there is this, this large influx, you could say, of immigrants. God is really doing here what he had promised to do for Abraham so long ago. He is promising to bless his people numerically. That's what he told Abraham he would do for him. It seems like the promises of God are coming true. That after long difficulties, family struggles, personal strife, things are starting to look up. But, verse 8, it says a new king arises, a new pharaoh, who doesn't know Joseph. Uh, Joseph was one of the sons of Israel, verse 8. He doesn't know all that Joseph did for Egypt to save Egypt from famine and the societal collapse that would have come along with that. And the king begins to do what can best be understood as a campaign of systemic oppression and genocide against the people of God. We'll talk about why it seems that Pharaoh does that in our second point, but His actions make clear that this is what he is doing. Verse 11, he enslaves an entire people group by force. People that once were free, that were just their neighbors, are now slaves. Could you imagine waking up from one day to the next and someone who used to be just your neighbor is now a slave? This wasn't just happening in an ethereal, far-off way. This was happening door to door 
region to region, county to county, neighborhoods were changing overnight from free people who were your neighbors to people who were now slaves. And then when enslavement no longer seems to serve the purposes of Pharaoh, verses 15 to 22, he moves on to genocide, to wiping them out. That's what trying to have the midwives kill all the male children, verse 16, or later having any Egyptian that saw a Hebrew male child throw them into the Nile River. That's what that's about, systematically ending a people group, either through the medical system of the day, the midwives, or just through a blank check for violence in the community. If there were no more Hebrew men in the future, then either Hebrew women would be taken against their will as consorts to Egyptian men, and their people would slowly melt away, or the Egyptian women, or I'm sorry, the Hebrew women would have no one to marry, and the bloodline would slowly die out. And that would mean the end of the people of God's promises, the exact people that God said through you, I will bless the nations. Through you, I will bring redemption. So this was an assault, not just on God's people then, but on God himself. Because it was an affront to his sovereign promises, to his own commitment to do what he said he would do, to deliver his people and bless them against all odds. And we should expect that when you challenge God, he is going to respond. Exodus shows us just that. God responding in power to a challenge to his faithfulness, to his commitment to being for his people. Exodus will show us that a threat to the promises of God's people is as much attack on God as it is on those people, on the promises he has made to them, and that God does not take Attacks on the promises he has made, on the people that he is committed to, lightly. God isn't the kind of king, the kind of ruler that will turn his back on his people overnight. He's not the kind of king or ruler that will siphon off things for his people for the betterment of himself. He's not the kind of king or ruler who's going to pass laws and use his own power to benefit himself. He is the kind of king who is going to spend everything he can to make his people safe and see them thrive. He's the kind of God that takes action. And that's what we're going to see in the rest of the book of Exodus, that God takes action for his people in the midst of suffering and hardship. Though that may not come right away, it may not come when we want it, it may not come for decades, for centuries it doesn't come for the people of God. But there is no question in Scripture's mindset that God will answer. And as comforting as it can be to know that, we still seem like we have a question. If that's true, then how does this still happen? How is it still the case that wicked, terrible things like genocide, slavery, oppression still happen? And that brings us to our second question. How do challenges to God's faithfulness come about? Well, they come about through a complex web of things that I couldn't pretend to untangle. And anytime we can say that it boils down to just one thing, we're, we're either focusing on just a slice of what's happening or we're being too reductionistic. So I want to caveat what I'm going to say here by saying this can't possibly comprehend all the reasons that oppression and genocide and enslavement happen. But there are some elements that we see here in the text that, that point out why things like this happen. 
And at least two of the major factors for why things like this happen are fear and consent. Fear and consent are part of why things like this happen. Verses 10 and 12 of chapter 1 show fear as what motivated this Pharaoh to oppress these people. He feared that they would one day be too strong and too big for the Egyptians and that they would turn on them. He wasn't fearing something that was happening right now. There was no widespread problem that they were having with these neighbors. This was only a fear about something that might possibly one day happen. That maybe in the future they would get bigger and bigger, that the Egyptians wouldn't grow themselves, but that, that these people would grow larger and larger beyond them, and that maybe someday someone else would come and invade them, and instead of rising up to defend their neighbors, they would side with the invaders and try to take down the Egyptians. There was a lot of speculative fear, a lot of what-ifs, a lot of maybes that this campaign of oppression was built on. They were fears without any facts to support them. They didn't go and talk to the Hebrews and say, if this happens, would you stand with us? They didn't say, we have this concern. We don't know what to do with this. We don't know what your intentions are. Would you, would you share with us? They didn't ask them a question. They just assumed. They assumed that that's what those people are like. Too often we do the same things. We assume that that's what those people are like. People who look different from us, people who have different jobs, different backgrounds, different socioeconomic statuses. We assume, we don't ask a question. We assume out of fear that something is different that we can't handle, that they're going to be a problem. Egyptians were driven by fear to practice enslavement and genocide. And fear, especially when it has no basis in facts, when it has no connection to the thing that it is afraid of, is a dangerous thing for us to be led by. Conspiracy theories, rumors, fears without any basis are problems for how we treat each other. We need to be careful of the influence of the things around us in our lives. But fear in and of itself, even from a powerful few, is not enough to make something like this happen. Oppression requires more than just fear. Oppression like this, a society-wide oppression, requires consent. Now, if you look at the text, the text doesn't say the people didn't know Joseph. It says a king arose who didn't know Joseph. It's most likely that, that some of what they're afraid of, of an invading army coming, is because this king was an invading king who had taken over the land and didn't know the people very well. It doesn't say that the people didn't know who Joseph was. It doesn't say the people didn't know who these people had been, how they had helped Egypt in the past, how they had actually saved Egypt from crumbling rather than just watched it be destroyed. But those same people who would have been living side by side with these people, who would have known that history, would have experienced the help of their ancestor in saving their society, did not speak up. They did not resist. Whether out of jealousy, fear, indifference, 
They didn't speak up for neighbors, for friends, for co-workers, for family members. Joseph married an Egyptian. There was certainly likely intermarriage between Hebrews and Egyptians in these days. They were silent and compliant when their neighbors, friends, and family, those people, were being hurt. This is part of how oppression happens. We don't speak up when we see something happening that is not okay. It happens through the consent of those who stay silent when we ought to speak out for our neighbors, for even those we don't know. In the face of baseless fears that have no connection to reality, and this tragically means that oppression is not forced, it's allowed. It happens when we allow it to happen, when we are more afraid of what happens to us than what will happen to them. When we're captive to fear and indifference, when we're silenced because we want to save our own lives, our own way of life, our own preferences, when we care more about us than we do about someone else. This is how it happens. It's how it happened in America. That's how it happened in Germany. That's how it happened in Egypt. Through people not speaking up, but consenting, going along with it, enabling it. Things like this involve us. We play a part. We have to step up. We have to speak up. It is not enough to be silent and disagree. Because oppression will be much more like an escalator. You can stand still on an escalator. You're not getting farther along, but you're still moving. To walk against a system of impression and injustice, you have to get off and walk down. You have to be actively moving in the other direction. But the puzzling reality that this text points out to is not just the importance of speaking up and the absence of that here in Egypt. It points out that, that though our resistance is morally important and right, that we ought to stand up against these things, it may not be enough to bring the deliverance that needs to come. It may not be the way that deliverance ultimately comes, and that brings us to our final question of, of this, if this is what oppression looks like. It, it comes out of our own fears. It comes out of trying to save our own neck, take care of ourselves, take care of number one first and foremost, which is not what Christianity calls us to, but to give our lives radically over for others. If this is what oppression looks like, where it comes from, then how does it end? Well, first, and maybe counterintuitively, deliverance does not come through our resistance, through our own efforts. Even though that resistance is critical and important in combating oppression, our passage shows us that our own efforts are not enough to bring widespread deliverance in and of themselves. Look at the text again. The midwives are courageous in verses 17 through 19. They were not Egyptians. They lied to the king in power to protect innocent people. They willingly deceived a king who could crush them to save children. But that did not end the genocide. Pharaoh's daughter was also courageous. She took pity on Moses that he was a Hebrew child, she brought him into the very house that had ordered the execution of this entire people group. 
but it did not end the genocide. It didn't save the lives of all the other babies that were being thrown into a river. Moses striking down the man that was cruelly beating another Israelite in chapter 2, verses 11 through 12, saved that man's life. But it did not end even slavery for that man. It didn't end the system of oppression that he was caught up in. Each of these actions were important. Each of these actions were courageous resistance against oppression, and yet they didn't have the power to deliver an entire people that were suffering. The individual actions were not enough in and of themselves. Just look at verse 23 of chapter 2. It says, the people are still crying out. Their cries are coming out so loudly that they're coming up to God. They're being heard in the heavens. Even after courageous efforts, even after important and right resistance, their efforts weren't enough to make the final difference. And the same is true at our own efforts at resisting oppression and injustice and sin in our world. They are important, they are right and necessary, but they are not enough in and of themselves to end these things. As we can see, look around. Oppression and injustice are still in our world. They're still in our country. They're still in our state. Thousands of years later from this text, for all of our progress, we have not moved beyond these basic human problems of fearing for ourselves and taking care of ourselves over others and consenting to the oppression of others. We like to think that we have gotten very far. We like to think that we are nothing like the people a thousand years ago. But there are so many ways in which we are not really changed. We still act on baseless fears and we give consent to mistreatment when we don't care about those people. We need these problems to come before someone who can actually do something to make it all stop. And though we don't like to admit it, if we face the facts, that is not us. It's not you and I. History keeps showing us that it is not us. The text doesn't say that it needed to be heard by other people around them. It doesn't say that the people's cries finally reached the midwives and the midwives solved the problem. They were more morally upright. They did something about it. It doesn't say that the cross finally reached Pharaoh's daughter, someone in a position of power, and that person in a position of power finally did something about it, and everything changed. It doesn't say that the, that the cross hurt someone who was passionate for justice and who charged out to make things right, and that one person made all the difference. No, the more enlightened, the more upstanding people of that time did important things, but they were not able to solve the overall problem. God's people were not rescued through progress. They gave important efforts. Progress is important, but we are not saved through progress. The text says their cries came before God. Chapter 2, 23. And God, 24 and 25, hears remembers, sees, and knows. That all of this has been happening. There's sort of been this, this one playing field where it's one side against another. It's these people versus those people. And there is just this crushing oppression that's happening. And then all of a sudden, the game changes. All of a sudden, a new player enters the game. All of a sudden, a new power enters the story. 
It's an ominous description. God who made all things. We're still connected back to Genesis. God who is actually giving breath and life to these very people that are oppressing. God is now listening and paying attention. And he sees, it says, and he knows. It's a description that expects that something very different is about to happen. That someone who could actually do something about things is going to be at work. And this is the recurring theme of Scripture, that it's not progress that saves us. But the deliverance comes from outside ourselves. That ultimate help in your life does not come from you. It does not come from other people like you. It comes from outside of us, from God. And though we may not like hearing that, that we may want it to be that help comes from me because then it's on my terms, because then I can control what it looks like, because then I have the say and I'm never uncomfortable with where it leads, that we may want it to be on our terms, it is actually the best news that it is not. I want you to hear this because then it means if it is not on your terms, if it is not by your effort, then deliverance comes whether your efforts work or not. Help comes whether you are able to manage it or not. Rescue comes whether you are able to find it and figure it out or not. The grace of God comes just because it comes to you, not because you have figured out exactly how it works. With God, deliverance comes even to those who are oppressed by a power they can't break. Much of our society's notions of progress and deliverance are based on having the right knowledge and the right strength to do things at the right time. Christianity gives you a deliverance that comes when none of those conditions are met. When you don't have the right knowledge, you don't have the right connections, you don't have the right strength, you don't speak the right language, you don't have the right clothes. That's when the deliverance of God shows up for you. Not when everything is right. That's why it is so good that the power is outside of you because then it doesn't depend on you following these 16 steps and doing them in the exact right order because then it is just by grace. And grace can be for any of us, even when we are in the gutter and kicked to the curb. In Exodus and in all of Scripture, God was always going to be the one who would be the outside help for his people to save and deliver us. Those were the promises that he made in Genesis, that he is going to stand up and defend. He was always going to be the one who would not abandon us to our limited efforts and abilities, who would not leave us in baseless fear and shameful consent, but who would hear our cries and answer who would remember his promises and rise up to defend them, who would see, hear, know, and remember and deliver in our distress. And Exodus is going to leave us with a sense of of longing for that as we're going to see God's people be rescued and yet there's something in them that, that is still like the people that oppress them that's still in this walking away from God. It's going to leave us with this sense of, of, yes, that's who God is, and yes, there's still something that we're waiting for, a different deliverance, a greater deliverance to come and rescue us, which God would most fully and counterintuitively do another time when the cries of another son, not Jacob, but Jesus, would reach his ears, a son likewise who is being accused and oppressed 
for no good reason, who was hated out of irrational, sinful, jealous fears, who was chained and ruthlessly beaten as Israel was, who would carry the weight of a whole people suffering on his back, whose cries would be our cries, but that time God the Father would hear, remember, see, know, and not answer. He would not deliver Jesus on the cross. He would be silent. Because not answering Jesus was the way to answer us. Not delivering him was the way to deliver us. It was the answer to all the promises because the promises were for deliverance from all oppression, not just from one country, not just from one problem, but for all the oppression that's not just out there but the oppression that comes in here, that looking after ourselves first, that with a little power and a little opportunity will become oppression against other people. And that was what Christ did on the cross. He stepped in for the oppression in here too, to fix all the problems. Because for deliverance to truly come into our world, sin, which is the root of all oppression, there and in here had to have its power broken in the world around us and in us. And that's what Christ did at the cross. He put the root cause of oppression that is sin to death in himself so that deliverance might come to all people in all places for all time. That we would all wake up from the nightmare of oppression. That he would rid us of the sin that turns us and others into monsters with just a little bit of conditioning. That he would empower us to love instead of fear. That he would empower us to stand up instead of consent. This is the miracle of the cross. That God would do what we were not able to do and that he would do it not just for those who were crying out, but that he would make it available even to oppressors. That he would keep doing this. The Apostle Paul is a great example of God being gracious to oppressors. We're going to see later in the place God being gracious even to Pharaoh. Believe it or not, God wants to be gracious to oppressors because sin always makes us oppressors. Whether we have the power to act on it or not, it is still there. Oppression is just sin plus power. And you may have the power, but Scripture says you have the sin. And he wants it to be so that all can wake up can stop living this nightmare, stop being these oppressors. Because the miracle of the cross is that Christ can even turn the lions of oppression into lambs of grace. That he would not discard the humanity, but only the sin. And that that true person that's been waiting to shine, but that has been captive to sin and their own oppressive heart, could finally start to shine with who God made them to be. Because he is the one who draws us, no matter how deep the darkness, out of darkness and into light. And so in light of that, what should you do differently? What should you do differently this week? I want to encourage you to do two things as we close. To have faith and to resist which are really the opposites of fear, faith, and complicity, resistance. Have faith. I want to encourage you to have faith like 
the, mo- like, uh, the midwives, like Moses' mother, like Moses. But God's deliverance will come whether your efforts succeed or not. Because they don't depend on you. Because the help is always going to come from the outside in your life right now, in the problems you are facing right now, the help was always going to come from the outside. Have faith that help is still going to be the way it has always been, coming from the outside. He is still the one who saves you in spite of your own best efforts. You can work hard, but without the weight of carrying it all yourself. Have the faith that when your hard work goes nowhere, when your best efforts don't even put a dent in the system, that there are still options you don't even know about. You don't have to turn to fear. So put your faith in the God who is the outside help that comes by grace, whether you have been the oppressor or the victim, because his heart is to make all things new, to make all things right. But don't just have faith, have actions. Scripture says that, that faith without works is dead, that it is a living and active faith that we have. So let your faith be active, have resistance. Let your faith in the God who saves by his power lead you to refuse to consent to oppression and sins, great or small, through the confidence that the resurrection is really yours which promises to you that no matter the circumstance, no matter whether your efforts fail, no matter whether your life is lost, that God always sees, hears, remembers, and knows who you are. And that he will remember you at the end. The faith in the resurrection gives us the confidence to resist because we no longer have to watch our own back. We have God, the Lion of Judah, at your back now to take care of everything you need and everything you can't think of. So resist. Resist indifference and fear in every corner of your life. Don't be ungracious when you do that. That's just wading back into oppression. Do it with grace, with kindness, with mercy, with respect. But don't enable sin either. Don't be silent in the face of it. Address it where you find it. Having the faith in the power of a grace which lets us say, if Christ died to deliver the oppressor in me, I wonder what he will do for the oppressor in them. I want to see that. I want to see people like Saul become Paul in our time. Don't you want to see that? Don't you want to see something more than just a be-cut-off approach? to the difficulties in our lives. Don't we want to see redemption? Don't you want to see something amazing in our times? Won't we put our hope in something that changes a Saul to a Paul? Because the help is always coming from the outside for those who couldn't do it for themselves. Let's pray. We'd like to leave a little space for you to to talk to God about some of the things that we've just been talking about, to maybe thank him for being the one who sets you free even when you can't that it doesn't depend on your progress. It depends on his grace. Maybe confess the ways that, that you haven't resisted, that you have been silent, that you've consented. Ask God to give you greater faith in his deliverance and to extend it to others. Let's pray.
God, I want to pray for all my friends in this room and outside this room who are facing oppression right now, that you would hear them and that you would answer, that you would let their hearts know that it's not on them to be the ones to deliver themselves, but that you see them and you deliver them, that it is not their fault that they have been sinned against, but that you will rise up and judge. And so, God, I pray that you would be gracious to them. Would you be gracious to us where we are oppressing, where we are sinning? Would you make us new people, that we might walk in the newness of life, that we would be brought out of darkness and into light in you? In your Son's name and by your powerful Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.